Well, I preached this sermon last week three times at La Mirada uh, congregation, and um, it was Valentine's Day when I preached, and the passage is all about love, and it was just amazing how the timing was. However, I'm a bit of a curmudgeon with Valentine's Day. Um, I have absolutely no idea how to trace it back to St. Valentine, who was a martyr, um, and, and there are all kinds of amazing stories about him, but isn't it amazing how we tend to define love in our society? When we think of the word love, it, it almost always ends up being romantic only, and then even the definition of romantic love tends to be defined by romantic comedies. The, this movie genre that I actually think uh, creates a really wrong, unrealistic, quite silly definition of what love really is. Now, if you're mad at me because your favorite movie is Sleepless in Seattle, I'm sorry. Right? Well, not really. Obviously, that wasn't very sincere. I really do think we need to step back and think about the way we define love. I mean, if you think about it, when I, when I think about Valentine's Day, I think of stuff like this, right? And I know some of you celebrated in very meaningful ways, and I'm not taking away the possibility of doing that, but look at these cookies. Text me. <laughs> what would you do if somebody gave you a cookie that said, text me? I... Now, how about crazy for you with the letter four? There's just some about that. Hug me. Is that really how you want to ask for a hug? Kiss me. Oh, are you commanding people to do these things? Get real. Be mine. Hashtag. Yeah, get real. <laughs> yeah, that one, that's all how you say it, I guess, right? <laughs> it's like, text me. Get real. That's what you hand back if you... If you're not interested in texting that person, right? Uh, be mine. All these interesting phrases that, oh, it's just, should I read the ingredients to you? Oh, that's funny. After listing all these things that will just kill you, it says, be careful. This, may, this was made near peanuts and milk and wheat. It was made near things that are actually nutritionally valuable. <laughs> Better be careful. Um, <clears throat> Uh, so so it, it's so interesting how we define love. It, it, talk about a word that gets overused without definition, that gets defined in so many different ways. My, I remember my first real experience with Valentine's Day was in elementary school where my teacher handed out these cheesy little cards that I had to fill out for everybody in the classroom, even the kid who punched me the week before. And maybe the teacher said, well, that's the point. You need to love him too. But I just, Stam just had to fill out a stack of these things. And it was like, how do you spell happy dad? And, and he doesn't even know half the kids in the class yet. And if you do that as a teacher, I'm sorry. It just needs to be questioned. But, but this, this whole idea of, of love defined by Valentine's Day. Caroline so wanted me to memorize the speech from Princess Bride about true love here <laughs> this morning. But, but I, I wasn't going to do that. But I do want us to step back and think about how we define this word called love. Do you ever play that game at a wedding reception where your table has to come up with as many songs with the word love in it as possible? Remember the first time I ever did that? I said, ah, we'll get four or five. We realized eventually with a table full, we could do that all day. 
how many pop songs have the word love in it? And so it, it's very concerning if our definition of this central biblical idea of love is defined by all of these shallow societal ways of defining love. And so how great that God hasn't left us to wonder if love is defined by what's on a cookie or a little card or a romantic comedy, but he defines love for us and calls us to this very true love, this real definition of love. So 1 Peter chapter 1 is where we get this definition, uh, but also this command to love genuinely love in a real way. So we are going to get real this morning. We're going to take the cookie's advice and get real about love. We're going to figure out what that really means. So 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to blow right by the chapter division. You know they're not inspired, those chapter and verse divisions. So sometimes they're best ignored. And that's what we'll do this morning. But 1 Peter 1, we'll start reading at verse 22 and we'll read right through 2-3. Let me pray as we go to the Word. Lord, help us now. We have been influenced by so many different uh, influences in our lives, defining this most important concept. So Lord, help us now think the way you do uh, and filter out the inaccurate or shallow ways we, we define love. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Peter 1, verse 22. <clears throat> Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all the glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. All right, so let's, Let's just make some points here. Gospel transformation, as you, you've all beautifully said, leads to true love. True love is what we're after in this passage. As Chris said, a genuineness. There's an authenticity to this. This is the real thing. And it's an earnest love from the heart. And it's, it's what we are to be. It's the assumed reality for the believer, for the people of God. I loved Kenny's a few weeks ago illustration of that, the Geico motto, it's what you do. It's now just the assumed state of your life. This is the assumption we can now operate out of that if you're a Christian, you will live a life of love. 
the people of God will be distinguished by their love for one another. That's what Jesus clearly says. This is how all will know you are my disciples, by your love for one another. There's this necessary reality of love for us. It's what we do. It's now our distinguishing trait. It's the ideal. And so really what Peter is saying to us now is, is in light of who you are now, get on with it. Go ahead. I had a football coach who always used to say, come on, boys, get on your horse. So you need to get on. I don't know why he was thinking about that. We don't fight wars with horses anymore, but he, he, he was really old. And so <laughs> get on your horse is what Peter said. Let's go. Let's go. Now, now this is true of you. So here we go. It's what you do now. And he's not ignorant or naive to the reality of the difficulty of this. That's why Kenny's prayer was beautiful for us. That prayer of confession where we acknowledge, oh man, this very day we have battled sin of impatience or anger or lust or, 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 or selfishness. Every day it's still an ongoing battle. We're not minimizing that at all, but we go into that battle realizing that we have the power and the freedom in Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, according to the word of God, to be victorious in that battle and make amazing progress that actually ends up creating relationships within the church that makes a world that doesn't have that power marvel. That should be, that's what is meant by, they'll know you're Christians by your love. There will be a distinguishing mark of love in your lives so that people pay attention. They notice that there's something qualitatively different about your lives, about your relationships. It's not just this general love that God, yes, does bring in the world in people who aren't believers in Jesus, but he's saying there's something distinctively different about those who are in the way they love. He says oh, there's an ideal then of our relationships within the church being right, being well-ordered, being loving, being giving, and being different because of it. And so it's a sincere love that, as, as Hunter was saying, is free from conflicted motives, false pretense, uh, selfish gain that's only posing as a loving front. No, this is something very different. And what we need to realize, again, is this is anchored, as several of you beautifully said, in God's work. This is not just doing good things. This is God's work in us showing up. In some ways, this entire letter continues to explain 1-3. 1-3, which I preached here a few weeks ago, I, I think is the anchor verse of the letter. And the rest of the letter is, is really just expanding on 1-3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Wow, that's a loaded verse. It's a praiseful verse. It's according to God's great mercy. It's something that he's done in us, making us new. And it leads to a living hope, a hope that doesn't go away. It's alive because Jesus is. It's alive because it's taken on life in us. And it's according to his defeat of death and sin and his resurrection. It, it's something that's now true of us. And so really, this new life that God has brought about 
through his word leads to a hope that's imperishable that leads to a love that is earnest, that is authentic. It's got to be grounded in that work of God, that hope that he has. So the point is, hopeful people are loving people. So as you seek to deepen your hope in God's work according to his word, then your love will increase. So, so hope is really what we're finding we're after as we gain greater assurance of what God has done. And this leads to a gratitude for that hope that overflows in love for people. Look what he says in 2.17. Same idea. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So this love for the people of God, this term brotherhood that we get, it's the word Philadelphia that we, we name the city after, the city of brotherly love. And so it's a familial love. It's not just a, a vague general love. It's a love you have like your family. That's why Christians call each other brother and sister because we recognize a family connection that actually trumps DNA connections. Family of origin connections are trumped by the family connection we have among the people of God. And that's what he's calling us to recognize and live out. So it's very important that we stop and define love. And two verses beautifully in the Bible define love for us. As clearly as you can. So if you have any doubt, any wonder of what love is, here it is. John 4.10. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation or one who satisfies God's righteous wrath for us, sent his son as an, a, a propitiation for our sins. And so love is defined centrally for us by God's sending of his son. For God so loved the world, he sent his only son. So the sending of the son epitomizes love. And Jesus personifies love he is the one who displays love for us. Romans 5.8, another great defining verse for us. Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So in the sending of Jesus, in the dying of Jesus, we have God's love displayed in the way that defines love for us perfectly. Which means... There's a, a grounding of it in God's nature, his eternal nature, an overflowing of it in self-sacrificial giving for the good of another. It's this purposeful commitment to sacrificial action to accomplish the good for another. It's seeking the best for someone else. Now, it can be hard. It requires great wisdom to know what the best is for someone. But we know fundamentally that's a restored relationship with God. And so our love for people orients around a desire to see them come into closer relationship, closer fellowship with their creator. That's what we're made for. And so when we love people, yes, we can buy them delicious cookies and give and even make them maybe. But but what we really want to do is help them, even in acts of kindness, to see the kindness of God. 
to see who God is in Christ, loving them in a way that draws them closer to the one who made them. So it's, it's a purposeful commitment. It's intentional. And it's something we commit to. You know the, the phrase, do random acts of kindness? There's this idea that things done randomly or spontaneously are somehow more virtuous than things done in a planned way. No, the, what we're being called to here in this passage is to love in a purposeful, intentional, strategic, planned out, uh, planned out ahead of time, thoughtful way, where you get up in the morning and say, say, Lord, show me how to strategically love people today. And we plan to be loving. And yes, we want something instinctive that just flows from us in it, but that comes through being intentional about it. The new birth through the good news, through the word, gives us these sorts of lives. And it's all because of hope. That, that theme of hope doesn't show, just show up in verse 3. It shows up again in verse 13. See verse 13? Therefore, preparing your minds for action be sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Kenny pointed us to that in the time of, of corporate worship, that our hope is grounded in Jesus coming back and making all things right one day. And we, we so trust in that assurance that we're able to love extravagantly and genuinely. That's what he calls us to. It's also there in verse 21 before our passage starts, who through him, speaking of believers, are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith, your trust, and hope are in God. So do you see how hope-grounded this love is? And, and it's all grounded in who he's made us to be. And notice also, we, we can't leave anything that's happened before this passage behind. Uh, notice also that this hope leads to holiness. Look at verse 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So we have a holiness that goes with our hope. So our love then is grounded in a holy hope. And that holiness leads to a fear, doesn't it? Verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So what we're seeing here is this idea of love must be linked to the idea of hope in God's work in Christ and a holiness that flows from that and a fear of God that flows out of that that leads to love. That's why we can't just isolate one word and settle there without connecting it to all the other words God wants us to consider with this. That keeps us from a definition of love that's mere sentimentality. That's mere warm affections that comes and goes. Now, when this is grounded in holiness, so that means our love is holy love. It's grounded in righteous living. It's grounded in obedience to God's commands. It's grounded in a pursuit of holiness. So it's holy love. And our holiness is loving. And it's a healthy fear of God. It's anything but, but some shallow, warm feelings merely. It's something deeply grounded in holiness and fear and hope. 
So you got it? Hope, holiness, fear, all wrapped up in this love that we then live out. So we belong to God, and we then therefore show the appropriate characteristics. So let's just walk right through the passage and look at vital aspects here. So it starts, as we saw, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. So this, this having purified, it's called the perfect tense. It means it's done, but it has definite ongoing daily reality now. And so, yes, there's an established fact of it, but there's an ongoing working out of it in our lives as well. It's past and ongoing. And it's an actual purification that God has brought about in our souls, not just superficially in our actions, but in our souls. So there's a, a purity now, a holiness. This is related to that holiness idea we just looked at. There's now a set-apartness to the believer. We're different our lives look radically different now. There's a purity of mind and from sinful desires that we've been set free from to love one another genuinely. The purity of this heart, as Chris pointed out, is linked to a sincerity. This, these words pure heart and sincere or earnest are very much linked. There's a reaffirmation here in this purity of our earnestness, which means a strenuous, stretching, uh, reaching out, persistently exercised effort at this. Uh, the truth we believe in the gospel with its promises and its demands that come with it lead to lives of believing and obeying. So love is not merely sentimentality. And we're serious about it. We're earnest about it. I love that word earnest. We desperately need earnestness. We live in a culture that, that has lost earnestness as a value. Our, our culture is so dripping with cynical, sarcastic, ironic uh, humor. John Stewart made an entire career on that. And in, in some ways, that communicates really effectively to our culture with just a sneering sort of negative, uh, cynical, I'm above all this. I'm actually seeing all the foolishness the way it should be seen. And there, there can be a skepticism toward earnestness. It says, love one another uh, from a sincere brotherly love, earnestly from a pure heart. Like you mean it, like you're setting about it with seriousness, with diligence and vigilance. Do this like you really mean it. And this individual spiritual maturity is then intended to lead to a maturity manifested in relationships in the local church. That's why if you're not committed to a local church, you really can't do this the way God wants you to, to the degree he calls you to. Read through the Sermon on the Mount sometime and ask yourself, which of these commands can be obeyed in isolation, not in relationship, meaningful, committed relationships? None of them can. None of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, none of those can be exhibited with just you on a mountaintop. They're all the result of committing to relationships and in, in primarily in the context of the local church is what the New Testament means. 
And then in the difficulty of those relationships, you somehow find the power in the hope you have in God to love in the way he calls us to. Oh, talk about a tough sell in a consumer culture where we do treat church like 24-hour fitness. We do treat church like consumers very often where we, we just want to pick and choose and shape it exactly what we want it to be rather than moving toward the difficulty of relationships with people you would never know at all, never mind choose to be close to apart from our bond in Christ. I, I can't emphasize this enough because for the past generation, the church growth movement has led us in the opposite direction of this value. It's caused us to think so demographically and special interest niche ministry minded that we, we do everything we can not to get around people very different than we are. I mean, if I have to go to church with people different than me, at least give me a group of people just like me is how we think. Within that little group, I don't really want to be with anyway. So at least give me the, as much commonality as I can possibly have. Just keep me within my age group. Keep me within my hobbies. Keep me within my demographic. Keep me with the station of life I'm in. And it's tragic the result it's had in the church. I think the homogeneous unit principle, which is a stated church growth movement value, that actually works. That's the problem. It works. People like the easier road, so you get more people. That's the problem. The pragmatics actually work. And as a result, we don't end up having the kind of relationships that require the kind of love that actually end up advancing the true gospel. So that if you remove the hobbies and the similarities of demographics, what have you got left? We've got the gospel, what we've always had at the core of it all anyway. And so we're called to staggeringly loving relationships that make no sense apart from God's work for us in Christ. Deep, earnest, familial love must flow out of our maturity if it's ever going to be real maturity. It's got to be loving commitment. This love doesn't depend on anything but our identity and calling as God's holy people. And there are no excuses for unloving lives. None. Again, this is not minimizing the difficulty of this. This is not a simplistic view of this, but it is trying to blast away at ways we've learned to think that get us uh, into excuse making, feeling somehow we don't have to love. And yes, there's a process of moving toward this ideal in our relationships with a community and with individuals. Of course, there's a difficult process we often have to commit to that can take time, that depends on growing maturity for it to come about. But that's the very point. When we have that ideal of loving relationships that are self-sacrificial and self-giving and not easily offended and not easily uh, uh, disappointed, but move toward those relationships with meaningful commitment, that's when we are required to grow in our own individual maturity so we can love that way. If we, if we do away with the ideal, we won't have the maturity we are called to have here. So there are no excuses. Above all, it says in chapter four, verse eight, above all, keep loving one another earnestly in 4.8. 
Since love covers a multitude of sins, we sin against each other. We hurt each other. We offend each other. But love, we're told, covers a multitude of sins. We can love, we, we can hurt each other and disappoint one another, but God gives us a love that ends up covering those. This idea of, of being able to continue to love in the midst and in spite of those things. And this is an affection of the heart. There's a way of thinking that I think is, is very troubling. See, the whole point here is that we're loving one another in a way that shows the way God loves us. Our goal, your goal, is to love one another. My goal is to love you so that something of God's love will be seen in that love. And so we need to think then about what our goal is in that love. And so, quite frankly, expressions like, I have to love you, but I don't have to like you. Or love is not a feeling, it's an act of the will. I don't think those are helpful. Now, they're helpful in describing how it starts out sometimes in our effort to love. That sometimes my love is nothing more than a commitment. But I'm not satisfied with that. Imagine if love in a marriage was just, honey, I'm just committed to you. I don't have much affection for you, but I love you. No. Is that an ideal? Sometimes, some days it may feel that way. But we don't want to be satisfied with that, do we? I have to love you, but I don't have to like you. I understand that feeling. And I've been there, and I've committed to love. And then I act as if I actually feel that way. First, usually by praying for the good of someone who I am offended by or don't like very much or, or don't have affection for. And I commit to, say, pray for their good. And it's amazing the way God's made us. When we act like we feel a way, often we start to feel that way. And sometimes people even reciprocate and they make it easier for us to love them then. Not always, and that's okay. We can still love, and that's what we're called to. But there are no excuses. Uh, there, there's, there's this devotion to earnest, heartfelt affection. We love the way God does. Here's the danger of those sorts of expressions. If we're satisfied with, I have to love you, but I don't have to like you, we will then think that that's how God loves us. I have to love you, but I don't have to like you, love. That God doesn't really like me. He just puts up with me. Because he's sort of stuck with this divine character that he can't do anything about. And he actually said he's going to love us no matter what. So he's stuck in this loving commitment that he'd prefer not to be in. But there he is. That's not how God loves you. And so that's not how we are to love one another. And so what that means, I, I love this passage because it tells us what this love looks like, earnest from the heart like you mean it. But it also tells us what it doesn't look like. Right? It, it, it points us to the opposite of love. Chapter 2, verse 1. This is, the, this is what love doesn't look like. So put away then, take off like you're taking clothing off. Take off, put away all malice. What's malice? Malice is a particular kind of hatred that's particularly pernicious because it, it, it looks loving on the outside. Malice, a desire to harm others, often apparently hiding behind good actions. So malice is not upfront hatred. It's underhanded hatred. 
It's seeking someone's demise in an underhanded way. Now, what I want you to notice as we go through these nouns describing the opposite of love is that they're all in the plural. So it's malices. That's why the ESV here, at least, puts all malice. So it's, it's just in the plural. Put away malices. In other words, any version of that thing, don't have it. Get rid of it. Any version of malice, get rid of it. Deceit to deliberately attempt to mislead people, to lie. Notice in chapter 2, verse 22, we are told that Christ had none of that in his character. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So the one who saves us and then sets an example for us is completely truthful. No deceit in him. And no hypocrisies. It's in the plural. Hypocrisy is, is pretending to be someone or something you're not. Not living in conformity with what you say you believe. Operating out of selfish desires. Motivated in a pretentious way that isn't authentic. And then finally, he says, uh, not finally, but he says envy. Don't long to possess the possessions of others that aren't yours. Be happy. Be, be encouraged that people have good things without needing to have them yourself. To even things out in your mind. And then slander means literally talking down other people. We, we call it running them down or, or uh, tearing them down with your words. In chapter 3, we're told that it's the enemies of Christians who are slanderous people. It's not Christians who tear each other down. It's the enemies of Christians do. So he's saying don't act like an enemy of Christians by tearing one another down. You want to talk about an age of slander with the internet. There is something about the internet that has given Christians freedom to tear down other Christians on the internet because they think there's this barrier between them and those people caused by their computer screen that gives them the freedom to be slanderous, to tear others down with blog posts or comments on blog posts. Uh, people think I'm a complete Neanderthal because I've never made a comment online anywhere ever. <laughs> I, just, I just think it's probably a waste of time. In my opinion, my opinion. I know I do some 15 people are going, you know, there's a quite a ministry. I know, I know. I know. I have just opinion here. This is not biblical truth. I just, I think the whole forum invites slander. It invites a mentality that is so unedifying. And yes, you may, you, good for you. You be you, and you go wade into that if you'd like to. Um, and I'm sure there's lots of good things happening, but boy, it's a dangerous place to be. That's my point. It's a dangerous place to be because it's, an, it's a slanderous place. There's a tolerance for slander on the internet that's terrifying. Things you would never say to someone in person end up getting spewed on the computer. And so we've, we've got to be so careful about these things. Love seeks the good of others, assumes the best. I have an, an acquaintance, his name's Tom Steller, and, and Tom, I was talking to someone about Tom one time, and they said, you know, you know the thing about Tom? When Tom sees good in another person's life, for Tom, 
it's as if it's good in his own life. It's no different in Tom's mind. When he sees blessing or good in someone's life, he rejoices in it as if it's in his own life. I thought, what a great thing to have said about you. I want to live in a way where that's said about me, where there's not envy and slander and malice and wanting to tear each other down and one another down. Um, now, this point has been made, but this is a vital point in this passage and throughout the whole book in the Bible. And it's this, the word is the thing that brings life and hope and love. Peter quotes Isaiah 40, verse 6 here. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass here in verse 24. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So this agent of the good news, the word of God, is this thing that brings this loving life because it brings the hope that the love springs out of. And he says, because that word is permanent and enduring and lasting and leads to a life and love that is, long for it. Long for that word. That's what he says. This good news comes through this word. This life-changing, love-producing word gives you this. So put these things away. And rather than have those things, long, he says, for the pure spiritual milk which is that word that brings the good news, and be like newborn infants. (laughs) Ed Clowney says that for a baby, for a newborn, milk is not a fringe benefit. (laughs) I love that. It's like, it's not an added on. It's not like when you buy a car and you say, yeah, I'll have tinted windows. No, this, this is the engine. The baby will die without this. Clowney also says something else great, and he says, and like our hearts, this word is pure because it's had its purifying effect. So this word should not have any additives. We don't need to add to it. And it doesn't need any preservatives. It it will last. And so it's pure milk, unpolluted, unadulterated, undiluted, free from deceit. Growth is impossible without nourishment. So he's saying, therefore, ardently desire the word. This is easier said than done, isn't it? The Bible can be boring to us. It it can be difficult to understand to us. It can require a kind of discipline that we we find hard. It's been amazing in my life, though, how at some times I don't want to read my Bible. I don't want to meditate on it. I, I don't want to apply it to what I'm thinking about all the time. I just want to go from the gut. But then when I when I, when I actually get into the word or bring it into a conversation, I immediately wonder why I didn't want to. It's amazing how quickly it confirms its goodness to us. And the reason it does that is because it points us to the goodness of God himself. And the whole point is, again, describing conversion here in verse 3, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. So we long for the word. We long for God's word so that we can, what, grow up into salvation. That's the result of this, that we grow up into salvation. That's the point of the word, that we're growing up. A true believer has tasted and seen that the Lord is good in the word, which means really to taste and see that God is good. Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. 
He's referring here to Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. He doesn't include the see, maybe because he's talking about hope and we haven't seen him yet. But love here and truth found in the word are bound together here. So we're purified by the word and given new birth by it. God's word is creative in creating the world itself and creating new life in us and love out of that new life. By the word of the Lord or the heavens made, their starry host, by the breath of his mouth, he makes it all. And so God's word creates and communicates and converts. And what I want you to realize is that the word of God is so powerful, you are never stuck where you are right now. This is another difficult thing for us to believe because we're constantly taught that we're stuck by our genetics or by our DNA or by the the poor parenting we had or we're stuck because of traumatic experiences that we've had. We're stuck because of an addiction that we have or the lack of something we should have in our life or should have had at some point. We feel so stuck where we are. And then what the real problem with that is, and then we're taught to affirm, confirm, and celebrate being stuck. Our way out of being stuck is to somehow be happy about it. Say, that's who I am, that, and, and just affirm everything about ourselves, even if it leads to an unloving life, even if it leads to lack of life, even if it's preventing us from living in relationship with God, we want to confirm it and affirm it about ourselves because there's self-affirmation above all else. But the great news is you are not stuck by what statistics say will be true of you if, for instance, your parents were divorced. Or, or if there is alcoholism in your family, or if you've experienced abuse or abandonment, you're not stuck there. If your dad and granddad had a bad temper, well, you're not just stuck with one, even though it may be part of who you are from your earliest days. You're not stuck there. The power of God, as the word of God takes root, as the spirit works, frees us from things we think we're stuck in. We're not And you're not stuck in a personality type. Kenny was talking about introverts and extroverts. That's another sort of thing we will use to just stay right where we are. Well, that's not really who I am. Well, maybe it's who God's calling you to be out of your weakness. And so we've got to be people who believe in the power of the word to free us in this way. And then the last point I want to make is this. On our elder retreat, we talked about uh, desires, opportunities, and, and, and what we longed for most for our church. And right at the top of the list was to see people coming to Christ, to see people who don't know Jesus coming into a saving relationship with him, people who are, are running away from God, being restored to relationship with him, and friends, the overwhelmingly Obvious and major way God does that is through the proclaiming of the good news out of the word by his people to unsaved people, to people who don't know him. That's what I've been trying to do this morning. And that's what I pray that we do throughout our lives with our neighbors and coworkers. If you're here this morning and you don't know the saving power of God that comes through the word, it's been preached this morning. 
And it simply means that you don't depend on yourself before a holy God, but you depend on his son who he sent because he loves you. And you turn from self and sin to trust in him. And that changes everything. And then when you do have that relationship with God, that becomes a daily exercise, a daily practice of depending on him more each day. And we do that by going to the word. That's why in our, in our song worship, we try to be word saturated. And in our preaching, we really try to talk about what's here. And we, we read through the Bible and have reading services and, and call all of us to be men and women of the word who get into it and become saturated by it. So then, then it just flows out of us to people in ways that not isn't just changing our lives, but changing the lives of the people God's brought our way. That's our desire that we pass on, that we preach this word to the people in our lives who desperately need it. Even if they're not aware of their hunger yet. Deep down, there's a hunger in humans to know God, to know their creator, that he's planted there. And so when we preach the word, that can be enlivened. And so that's our prayer, that we'll, we will preach and pass on the word to one another, believers and unbelievers. We all need one another to do this for us. So would some of you pray for us now in light of the word preached this morning? <laughs>